City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, acres and acres of tar and cement, as we keep saying, and here we are, and uh, it's City Limits. It's the fifth Wednesday of the month. We're going to be looking at some housing issues and urban issues today. For instance, the peaks over there, and you've got... Um, an interview lined up. Yeah, we've got a good interview coming up with Dr. Redden Resho, who's an urban researcher from Unimelb, um, and it's on informal urbanism, which is something we haven't talked about um, much before, but I think it will link in well um, with the interviews that you're going to do afterwards, which are... We're going to do afterwards. Well, um, (laughs) yes, we're going to (laughs) do. Which are about, yeah, we're we're looking at yet another estate that's being... um, being being privatised effectively a public housing estate by the state government. This one in Port Melbourne is also the the um, matter at Collingwood at the moment, of course, where they're having a regular Friday protest. And Catherine talked about that in the last Housing Day, and we'll yeah. talk about more of that in the future. But the Port Melbourne one is one again where again the people are being moved out or threatened to be moved out for um, you know the usual. Um, Effectively, it'll be, it's going to be handed over in this case to a community housing private service. So, again, public housing becomes private. And um, we're going to talk to two of the residents in the second half of the program about it. One of the residents, in fact, has already been moved once from a previous estate and told this would be the final move. And here she is again facing the same problems. Yeah. So we'll talk to those two people after, um, after your interview. Yes. And, uh, yeah, Okay. And before that, we'll have a... Well, have you got anything you wanted to uh, talk about? Um, not too much. I did want to ask you, did, did you end up going to the Transport for All rally? I did. I did. How the, was that? It, was, um, it wasn't bad. It wasn't a huge crowd, but it was, uh, it was quite effective. We stopped a mm-hmm. tram and, you know, the usual, we tried to get the wheelchair on a tram and su- surprise, surprise, you couldn't. Yeah. Uh, and people with, um, you know, prams and other things and bikes, in fact, which you can't, of course, put on trams either. Um, so, it, it, yeah, there were, there were about probably 30 or 40 people there. It was quite, a, you know, it was quite effective in doing that. I don't know how much coverage it got. Um, a lot of people were taking photos, but I don't think too many of them were the media, unfortunately, the mainstream media. Yeah. But it was a it was a good rally, and you know, a couple of people um, who have disabilities spoke spoke very well indeed. So um, that was yeah, and it was it was nice and short as well, which I like about rallies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, and uh, yeah, you know, I made it. I uh, as I've done before at similar rallies, I always suggest that maybe you could tow the wheelchairs. I mean, you know. That, their brakes would need to that work pretty well. That would be a well, pretty but, uh, wild ride, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but that's, that's one possibility, I suppose. But, but again, that was about the fact, of course, that the government has now, has in the recent times, promised that, that all public transport would be fully accessible by the end of this year, which is no hope in the world. Uh, and that's what it was about, that they're way behind. I mean, we, we, we comment regularly here. They always say it's going to happen in 15 years, and it's always going to happen in 15 years. Uh, now they said 20, end of 2022, but uh, it's not going to, not, just ain't going to happen. And yeah. uh, it needs to because it does isolate people very badly. Uh, yeah. 
Speaking of, uh, of doing terrible things to people, there was a story uh, in The Age just the other day, and people, many of our listeners would have um, no doubt seen it, uh, that uh, feral cats, and or cats generally, in fact cats in urban areas as well, pet cats, mm-hmm. foxes, and uh, mainly they're the two main, but other, other um, feral animals kill 7 million animals a day in Australia. And we've, you know, they, they list the number of species that have been made extinct in um, since we've been here and uh, done this, but it's it's pretty awful. Mm. And, uh, oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. What um, a terrifying figure. It's sad. I, I do love cats, but, yeah, they definitely need to be indoor pets, right. not, not left to roam and... Um, carry out their murderous ways. No, that's right. Well, the story had that's but they that's natural to them, of course. So that's yeah. it. But um, there's a the story has a photo of a woman who actually has put a sort of net covering over her backyard so the cat can roam free, but it can't get outside the property. Yeah, and okay, that's, that's good. Uh, not a bad idea. Uh, I'm going to pour some tea. I presume you want a cup of tea. Yes. There we go. There's the, oh, is that close enough to the mic? Probably not. I'll put it. I'll put it up here for this one. People need to hear this. There we are. Beautiful, um, Beautiful sound art going right. on. <laughs> <laughs> City limit sound effects. When you talk about informal, informal urban, well, this is pretty informal. City limits. This is yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, so that, that was one. Of course, there was the budget last night. I, I've got this morning papers. I picked them up on the way, but I haven't looked at them yet. But I'm, I'm assuming uh, there's nothing for, for housing, transport, or things that, you know, the, or at least in those areas, going to the areas that should go to. There might be stuff for housing, but it won't be going to the public housing sector. Mm, yeah. There might be stuff for transport, but there won't be a lot of it to improve public transport in areas. There won't be a lot for. Education where it's needed, and uh, and and health where well health where it's needed either. I would think in many cases. So um, anyway, I think that's covered the budget pretty well. Um, <laughs> yeah, didn't even need to read no, it. <laughs> no, that's right. In fact, I couldn't bring myself to even watch him last night. I mm. I watched a replay of a replay of Pie in the Sky and New Tricks. Like each ad, I'd go to the other one because I've seen them so many times anyway. But I thought at least it was better than watching a replay of Josh Frydenberg. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't caught up on the budget yet either. No, well, you're getting 250 bucks uh, in your pocket, I think. Uh, Am I? Of, yeah, well. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> you probably are. Yeah, I think so. Will that convince me to vote Liberal? Well, you earn <laughs> we money. Maybe see. you're getting even more. If you earn money, you might be getting 400 and something uh, at some stage. Uh, yeah, so that's... But you've got to vote Liberal for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forget that. Thank, say thank you, Scott. Thank you, Josh, as you put number one in the ballot paper. Okay. <laughs> Um, All right. Any more news before we go well, to the interview? I just, just one other I want to talk about because the, the news service, and I mentioned watching telly last night, but the SBS news these days, almost I reckon almost two-thirds of the hour is devoted to the war in Ukraine. Um, just the same over and over. And while, I, while you know, it's dreadful what's happening to Ukraine, there have yeah. been wars around the world and there are wars elsewhere in the world going on that the press just ignores because they're presumably not European and white, primarily. Mm. Like Myanmar, people are suffering every day yep. and being forced to forced to leave. There's South Sahara, there's Sudan, yep. there's um, there's Ethiopia. Around the world, there's, um, there's people being displaced, there's people being slaughtered. Some of those places have been described 
as the worst human rights and 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 human need, uh, you know, anywhere. Mm-hmm. But they don't. They get very little coverage. They might get one paragraph occasionally somewhere. There's there's Palestine. There's the Palestinians yep. who yep. daily cop all this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, when we see when we see um, the sky light up with bombs landing on Gaza City, that's regarded as a positive thing, apparently. But when they land on in Ukraine, it's bad. So there's good bombs and bad bombs, according to our media. Um, the same destruction of South Vietnam, the same destruction of Afghanistan and Iran, Iraq, or Iraq in particular. I don't think they've actually invaded Iran yet, have they? Absolutely. But um, but you know they they're apparently good bombs because it's the same thing. You see the same thing, the same destruction, the same people being displaced. Yeah. But in this case, it's bad because of who's doing it. Now I'm not supporting who's doing it, but there is absolute hypocrisy in our media yeah. the way it's covered. Certainly, certainly hypocrisy. And that'll, that'll do. Let's go to your yeah, interview. Yeah, what a delightful way to finish off <laughs> the news segment. Oh, we're being all cheery as usual. All right. Um, let's go straight to it, I reckon. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, and today I'm interviewing urban researcher Dr. Gerdan Rescio on the topic of informal urbanism. So welcome to the show, Redden. How are you going today? Hi, Debra. Hi to all the listeners, and thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for coming on the show. So I thought to start off with, can you just tell me what actually is informal urbanism and maybe what are some examples that might help our listeners have a better picture of what we're talking about? Cool, yeah. Uh, As an urban researcher, I I define informal urbanism as really a collection or a mosaic of multiple practices in ways in which individual citizens and uh, groups even other players engage in what we call the production of urban life, the production of urban space. So it's often bottom up and uh, self-organized, but uh, some people think that it's separate from formal uh, urbanism or formal processes. But for us, it's actually never separate from state processes. It, It intersects, it's embedded sometimes in in the many state processes and normally in in response to practices of displacement, marginalization, and exclusion in many cities across the globe. So it's not just uh, in in the global south uh, or urban global south, it's also prevalent in some northern cities, whether we're talking about uh, European or American cities. Right. So um, I guess when we talk about informal urbanism, my like initial thoughts are thinking of things like slums or mm-hmm. squatting mm-hmm. or um, yeah. it could also be to do with like transport or other things. That aren't, it's not necessarily just uh, housing, is it? Right. Uh, that's the usual Uh, perception that informal urbanism only refers to what we call informal settlements, to slum-like conditions in some urban spaces. But you're right, informal urbanism also refers to different economic activities, self-organized economic activities like street vending, uh, informal transport operations, so, you know, tuk-tuk driving if you've been to 
Thailand, here in, in the Philippines, and currently here in Manila doing some research field work activities. We have a lot of what we call pedicabs or non-motorized uh, tuk-tuks. Of course, we have uh, rickshaws in South Asian cities. Then uh, you have very vibrant home-based enterprises as well, you know, home-based economic activities that are often unregistered or unrecognized by state processes. So these informal, what I call informal livelihoods are also part of informal urbanism. Mm, okay, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I've heard of, uh, and I think this is in the Philippines, jeepneys as well. Yeah. Yeah, jeepneys are actually considered king of the road here. So imagine, I think the last count before the pandemic hit, we had uh, close to 179,000 jeepney units mm -hmm. all over the archipelago. And I think that's more than the total number of bus units in Australia. Wow, okay. So now you've been studying a particular example of informal urbanism in Manila in the Philippines. Um, can you tell me a bit about the San Roque, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, settlement and what drew you to this case in particular? So it's called the San Roque settlement, informal settlement. It's located in Quezon City, which is on the northeast portion of Metro Manila. It's an informal settlement of about, now I think there are 9,000 families so close to 40, 45,000 residents. It used to be around, uh, I think, an, a settlement of about 15,000 families. Uh, but because of what we call processes or practices of coercive eviction, the number of population has been reduced now to about 9,000 uh, families. Uh, we started looking at San Roque in preparation for our Manila Traveling Studio, International Traveling Studio, uh, within the Melbourne School of Design uh, at the University of Melbourne. So two years ago, before the pandemic hit, we actually brought, I think, 14 or 15 University of Melbourne students to Manila to precisely study different practices, processes, and forms of informal urbanism here in Metro Manila. And then when I was trying to identify informal settlements that uh, at the time were facing uh, different struggles. I got in touch with a group of uh, volunteer architects, planners, very young planners, very young volunteers. Some of them are still students who were uh, helping a community called San Roque in their fight for the right to housing, the right to adequate housing in the city. So yeah, we, we got in touch with them. And then when we talked to some leaders, they, they narrated the processes of eviction now. So it started, the, 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 their struggle started in 2009 when the National Housing Authority, which is the Philippine government agency mandated to provide socialized housing to poorest of the poor or to low income, families in the Philippines. The NHA entered into joint venture agreement with uh, probably one of the biggest real estate companies in the country called Ayala, Ayala Land. So that's in 2009, 
And then part of the agreement was this uh, space or the community of San Roque. So the plan was for the, they, they're developing what they call North Triangle District. So San Roque is within that North Triangle District of Quezon City. The plan was to develop the new Central Business District of Quezon City. By the way, Quezon City is the biggest component city of Metro Manila. So the plan was to develop new uh, central business district with all the forms of informality removed. So informal settlement, uh, informal transport, jeepneys, pedicabs, and of course, street vendors. That's when uh, the community residents decided to unite. So there was a big eviction that uh, there was a big uh, attempt at eviction, massive eviction in 2010, but it never succeeded because the residents at that time were very united. So they put up human barricades. They occupied the busiest thoroughfare in Metro Manila, which is just adjacent to the community. And because they occupied that space, it led to traffic congestion, I think hours of traffic congestion, which compelled at that time the president to call for a negotiation. So that was a big win actually for the residents because they were united and they practically stopped the demolition of housing units in, in, in 2010. And from that incident, the Ayala and the NHA also learned something that if it's not going to, if, if violent or physical eviction, uh, actual confrontation wouldn't work, then why not resort to something else? And this is when what we call coercive incremental eviction or demolition started to be an option for them. So what happens during coercive or incremental eviction? So what they do is they offer a package of benefits. So there is monetary compensation and then the offer of relocation outside Metro Manila, you know, off-site relocation to residents who would be willing to self-demolish, to practically dismantle their housing units and then be relocated outside Quezon City. And that, that became very effective as a strategy. Yeah, so that sort of breaks up um, I guess people's kind of goals, whether they want to take that package and accept the demolition or whether they want to stick it out and protect everyone. Right. Uh, it has practically fractured the community because you're right. So some residents opted to take the very modest financial compensation. Some of them decided to be relocated to provinces outside Metro Manila. But some strong organizations and grassroots leaders also decided to stay put and uh, sustain the struggle for on-site uh, redevelopment. So their main call is to have on-site redevelopment or upgrading with Ensign Rocket. Because, you know, the usual relocation strategy in the Philippines has not worked for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, the story is always that, you know, residents would be relocated outside Metro Manila, 
60-70 kilometers away from their previous locations. But after two, three years, they would come back to either their old informal settlements or they would uh, resettle in other urban poor communities. Why? There are two main reasons. There is simply no employment opportunity in the relocation area. Second, the housing units provided to them are what we may call made of substandard materials. And then of course, if their employment opportunities are in Metro Manila, it's very difficult for them to commute. And the commute itself, the transport uh, process, the mobility is very costly for them. So they would rather resettle in other urban poor communities than stay in their relocation site. Mm. It's interesting because it's obviously there's a lot of differences between Australia and the Philippines, and we're in a very different situation here. But at the same time, there's a lot of parallels um, that you can see turning up because um, a lot of conversation going on at the moment in Melbourne is about like um, public housing going into private hands and, um, you know, people sort of saying that they're going to redevelop public housing uh, and that means you know reducing the amount of public housing and adding on social or community housing instead and lots of people talking about relocation as also something that's breaking up their community and people have lived in the same place and known the same people for maybe decades and then they're suddenly forced to you know, move to a completely different area and not have contact with those support systems anymore. So, yeah, it's interesting that those, like, same patterns pop up. Right. And even in Melbourne, because we also look at some what we call forms of informal housing in northern cities, and we looked at Melbourne. So last year, for two consecutive semesters, we offered what we call Studio I or informal studio informality uh, the focus is on informality and we ask our students to study different forms of informal housing arrangements in Melbourne and you know uh, one of the key findings was that some students resort to informal housing arrangements because of the lack of affordable housing for particularly international students so how do they do that? So a room that is ideally for just uh, good for just one or two students, they convert it into a space for three or four tenants. Uh, and then, of course, uh, they, they can pay at a more affordable rate. Then they would just have to share it with either their friends or their classmates. So there are also some flexible arrangements going on, but that's also part of how informality has become attractive to most residents and not just to urban poor, but also to low middle class residents or those who can't afford the high cost of living in cities like Melbourne. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and there's definitely been a lot of different smaller movements over the years in Melbourne. I can't quite remember when it was, but there was the, the Bendigo Street mm -hmm. protest. Um, and there was even a very long time ago uh, in the University of Melbourne, there was the Student Housing Cooperative. 
that was actually a squat of one of the disused uh, Melbourne University buildings. So yeah, it's definitely interesting to um, to talk about informal urbanism in Melbourne as well. Right, and that that actually proves that informality also persists even in developed countries or northern context. But going back to San Roque, the article that you wrote, which we will link in the show notes so listeners can go and find, um, it was from a little while ago, and I wondered whether you had any updates on what is happening with the Save San Roque Alliance and with the community there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so during the pandemic, the grassroots organizations were very active, actually, in terms of providing relief goods, relief packages to urban residents. Uh, one of the reasons was that uh, some of the residents were not part of the list of the government uh, of residents who uh, were able to receive the what we call here special assistance fund or SAP, SAF. Then, uh, so they came up with their own community kitchens. They collected funds from the middle class and other civic organizations. They also launched their own community pantries that allowed residents to really survive the crisis. In terms of their larger struggle for housing rights, so if before the main call was to develop in situ or redevelop in situ their housing units, now they have uh, practically pivoted because it has become very difficult to engage with the National Housing Authority and the local government of Quezon City showed some interest and enthusiasm to engage with the grassroots organizations. So the local government has now uh, entered into a series of negotiations with these grassroots organizations. And I think based on my uh, recent meetings with some grassroots leaders, the government is offering to enter or at least provide what they call in-city relocation for uh, most of these urban poor residents. So when we say in-city, it's outside San Roque, but it's still within Quezon City. So when I ask them, is it okay with you to have this kind of scheme? And then they were telling me, there are several factors to consider. One is that the local government has shown that they are willing to include renters and other residents that were excluded from the National Housing Authority list of beneficiaries. So that's uh, a plus uh, factor. Second, they might be able to enter into a more flexible financial arrangement or financial responsibility. And then third, they would be consulted and they would be part of the process of selecting the site within the Quezon City. So the usual uh, scheme is that if you get relocated outside Quezon City or Metro Manila, you don't have any say over where to live or how your housing units would look like. But here, every step of the way, they would be consulted. So for them, it's actually a big victory as well. Uh, of course, they had to somehow pivot. They had to adjust their own, their, their strategic and main call. But for them, it's still uh, a product of their sustained 
struggle on the ground and critical engagement with the state institutions. Yeah, it's it's good news that like, you know, it's a testament that um, community activism does actually get results and, you know, people shouldn't just give up hope. There's like, there's possibilities to push back against government and private developments. Oh, exactly. And uh, when I was talking to them, I kept telling them that, you know, this is a clear example that bottom-up practices and informal processes can actually unsettle, challenge uh, rigid formal processes, because if not for their sustained struggle, it's very difficult to get in-city housing units within this uh, big metropolis. Okay, wonderful. Um, so we're coming close to time, uh, but are there anything, is there anything else you want to talk about or anything else that um, you've learned about the interaction between informal and formal urbanism from the San Roque case? Yeah, well, I think it's always important to frame informal urbanism or practices of informal urbanism as more than just the spatiality and materiality of the production processes in, in the city. But it's also about questions of democracy, urban governance, and social justice. And that we can learn from bottom-up practices and grassroots activism uh, that these practices can inform a more responsive set of planning regulations and a more humane set of policies that can probably lead to a more humane metropolis or urban space in, in different parts of the globe. So when we talked about informal urbanism, we're not just talking about separate practices or independent self-organized activities, but we're practically learning about how democracy works or does not work in different parts of the globe or in different cities across the globe. All right. Um, so as I said before, we'll link your articles in the show notes so listeners can access them. Um, and are there any other ways that we can support or find you in your work or show solidarity with the San Roque um, campaign? We actually have an ongoing project. So there's also an ongoing grassroots engagement. And you can actually download or even watch some of the videos that we produce. We have a project website. We call it Tinig Maralita, which uh, is basically referring to voices of the poor. So we have tinigmaralita.com. So that's T-I-N-I-G Maralita, M-A-R-A-L-E. LITA.com. So we have all the stories from uh, grassroots workers, informal workers, street vendors talking about their own struggles. And we've translated most of the videos. In, 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 there's an English translation so you can understand their own plight and their own conditions. You can also follow me on Twitter uh, at Reden Resho. So I make it a point to upload some of the recent publications and grassroots engagements. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, amazing. Thank you, Reden, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
All right, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR, and that was an interview with Dr. Redden Resho on um, informal urbanism in Manila in the Philippines. What did you think of that, Kevin? It was interesting stuff, and um, you know, it shows that it's good to see the poor fighting back in many cases too. By the way, but there are also some interesting segues into what we're going to talk about next because I think Definitely. you know, again, it's uh, the same situation where people are being displaced by. The, the rich and the powerful and all that and yeah. it's interesting I mean also that they didn't weren't able to fight back at the time but I said to you earlier um, some of the great boulevards of the world in Paris and Petersburg that they they praise and talk about yeah. were built by displacing the poor who hadn't you know and after they were displaced the those who did it had no care for them, whatever they yeah. where they went, what happened to them, etc. But yeah, something um, we something we didn't get to in the interview was that um, while all this was going on, there's an 18 hole golf course like just across the road that de- the developers didn't even consider touching, and it just like shows that actually um, a lot of what's behind this is like getting rid of. Um, the urban poor that they consider as like unsightly and um, not fitting for their like flashy CBD. Um, And so, you know, like behind it is actually a way to cleanse the city of um, like who whoever they consider is undesirable. Well, I mean, that's, I, I, I could understand that because if it's a choice between golf courses for the rich or housing for the poor, well, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, oh, <laughs> to walk up, start. <laughs> um, Let's go to our guests. We'll yes. uh, take a break, come back, and we're going to get um, Jeannie Erksig and Margaret Kelly, both residents of Port Melbourne Estate, to talk about what's happening on their estate. For you are my life, I'm 
That was All You Are A Girl by Leah Flanagan. Uh, yes, in it. I thought it was almost like Melanie Sapka, the voice, but very nice. Anyway, um, Jeannie Ersegg's on the line, so is Margaret Kelly. They're both um, present residents of the Port Melbourne estate. The um, redevelopment's been called Barrack Beacon Boulevard. But Jeannie, let's go to you first. Just as a background, can you locate this for us? Where exactly is this estate and uh, how many units are there? Oh, yes, good morning. The estate is on the corner, well, I'm on the boulevard, which is opposite the beach, but it goes along the boulevard as well as Barrack Road and Beacon Road. So it's on the corner, and there's 89 units here. Right, and how many how many stories in the, in the estate? Uh, there's only two stories. Some of them, like mine along here, are only one story. It's a combination of one and two stories. So a combination, I think, of two and three bedrooms. Right, yeah. and what's and what? Well, let's let's bring it up to date. What's what's the threat at the moment? What, where are you at in terms of government saying they want to move people out? Well, it's still the same story. I haven't been to see the relocation team, but many residents have. A lot of residents are still unhappy about the way it's been done. We haven't heard anything from the government. Uh, just the we had a meeting with the planners and the relocation team, and they just said it was our turn for redevelopment here and that other estates will have their turn later. Right. And so when did this um, process start? Like when were you first told that um, this was going to be planned and how much time did you have to sort of gather yourself um, and, you know, start making a campaign? Well, we were only told two weeks before last Christmas Mm -hmm. somebody came to the door and said that the units we were in were going to be redeveloped and that we had to move out this year and they were going to be demolished. Now, I've only been here three years because I've come from Paran, from Bang Street, where they were also demolished and I've been relocated to here. And when I was actually relocated here, I was given the impression that this would be my forever home. So I asked them at the door, well, how come when I moved here, I've only been here three years and you didn't know that it was going to be developed? And they said, no, they didn't know three years ago. And I said, well, what about community consultation? They said they didn't know anything about that. And basically they didn't have any answers. Mm. And Margaret, I believe up to fairly recently, the government's been doing maintenance work in the places and spending money on them. So it would seem that... It's a waste of money if they now move in to tear them down for the, to hand them over to a private owner. Yes, absolutely. They um, have been putting uh, sprinkler systems into them. So they've had a team working here making holes in walls and now they've just left them with holes in their walls. <laughs> um, so, yeah seems either somebody wasn't communicating with somebody or it was a very sudden decision. That's amazing. So they've actually, they were there doing work and then they suddenly just stopped doing it and left, left it half done. Um, you're right. I mean, that, that does seem to be an amazing, uh, amazing non-coincidence of some sort. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're all left very puzzled. <laughs> So what's the general feeling in there about um, about what's what's going on? Uh, mystification, I, I think, really. 
um, because it just came out of nowhere. These are actually very nice units. They're very solid. They don't have any problems. Um, the estate doesn't have any problems. So, and, the, you know, there's never been any discussion of redeveloping it. So we're just, we're left bobsmacked. Yeah. Um, Margaret, do you have anything else to say on that? What's your experience been like? Um, sorry, uh, Jeannie? Ah, is Margaret as also on the line? Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm Margaret. Ah, She's apologies. Okay, <laughs> yeah, sorry sorry for that. Um Jeannie, did you have anything to add uh, on that? Yes, I wanted to say I had my balcony uh completely demolished and rebuilt <laughs> last February. I had water dripping down in my lounge room and so they came and they retiled the whole uh balcony. And they had to wait. I had to wait because the tiles were imported. So I had all my balcony redone and so did the neighbours, only to find out this year that they're going to demolish it all. And apart from telling you it's going to happen, have they given you a reason why they're saying this has to happen? They just said under the big build, the government has been given this money and that this is a, a good location. It's close to the shops and schools and that our turn has, came, has come up for redevelopment. But it's already there. I mean, a big build's okay, but a big build should be where there's nothing in the first place. It, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous to destroy what's there to, to replace it with, with the same thing. Well, they said they're going to also build an underground car park for the residents and a few extra social housing units. I believe about extra 20 units or something, but... That's it. But then, then, and of course, you use that phrase "social housing." They're using social housing, so they're not—they're not calling it public housing anymore. No, that's right. When the new units are built, it comes under the social housing umbrella, and they also build private apartments as well. So the extra twenty units, and uh, so could there be less of actual? So, well, we're calling it social, but public housing in the end. So, so some of the ones they're building will be private anyway, um, and not not even social housing. No, well, my understanding is that I haven't seen. I don't know if they have any plans for this estate or any have been drawn up. But I have come from the Bang Street estate, and from there. They're going to build over 400 units, but half of them will be social housing and half of them will be private units. And I presume that, that they will build social units here as well as private units, especially along the beach, because it's such a prime area. Right. And so apart from not really telling you much at all about the reason that they're doing this or giving you any prior warning, have they given any indication of where people are going to be relocated? Well, a few people have said that they've been to the relocation team and they've asked for specific areas or they've told them the, their needs and they've been given something or they've been indicated that they might have something wherever they've said they wanted something. But I don't know where um, any public housing units are and they'll only tell you when you go and see them where they are. Okay, so tenants are having to go and seek like that information out themselves rather than yes. rather than the developers being forthcoming. 
Oh, yes, no, uh, you have to go and see the relocation team and they will ask you where would you like to move to and they, and they will say that they will do their best to relocate you there, but there's no guarantee. Like, if you say you want to stay in Port Melbourne, there's no guarantee that you will stay in Port Melbourne. It's just if they have availability. Yeah, the, the, in this case, it's going to be run by a mob called Community Housing Limited, which is a private company, presumably, um, and um, under a thing called a ground lease model, something they've, they've dredged up. Um, can you tell us something about that? Either of you? Oh, well, that's the model they've also done under the Bang Street estate. So it's, it's not by the government. It's, it's leased out to a private company and they will run it for 40 years, I think, and then it goes back to the government. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a way for the government to say they're not, not strictly privatising, but of course, effectively, they are. And, uh, and the end result of this will be that where you've currently got public housing, um, you're going to end up with no public housing. That's, that's the end result of it, isn't it? Yes, yes. The public housing will go and you'll come back under the social housing umbrella which has different rules. Which includes an increase in rent, obviously. Yes, that's what I heard. That's why the residents here are very upset about not only the way we were told, but, but what will happen and what will happen if they want to come back. Yeah, because um, public housing, you pay 25% of your income in rent, as far as I know. And, and yes. um, Whereas in, in social housing, it's 30 well, it's a third. It's thirty-three percent. Oh well, I'm not sure, but yes, it's it's that's, Well, that's that's now. been the general social housing does. That's how it operates. It charges thirty-three percent, so your in, your rent will increase by that amount, which is pretty dreadful. Well, that's what all the residents are very upset about, and that's why we want to guarantee from them that if we come back or when we move, we will still be under the same contract that we are now and pay twenty-five percent. Right, and so um, residents, there you have a petition going, is that right? Uh, what's that petition yes. asking for? That the government not redevelop here, but they just renovate it. Yeah, so we'll put the link to the petition in the show notes um, on our podcast. You can find that at 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. Um, so listeners, right. go ahead and sign that peti- petition. Um, is there anything else that listeners can do to support um, people at Barrack Beacon? Uh, no, just here our story that... Yeah. We would like to still live here and we don't think it's reasonable that the government should demolish it when we don't feel that there is a need for it. And when we brought up at the meeting that there is land here, that they could actually build some units here instead of demolishing the whole estate and that the public is just aware of that, that we're not against increasing the amount of of housing here. Just they could do it differently. And, and and keep it public, of course, which is the the critical thing. But yes. um, yeah, look yes. uh, in in other estates earlier where they've like um, North Melbourne and or particularly in um, West Brunswick and other estates Northcote, where people have been displaced, they talk about the sense of community in public housing estates. Um, can you talk about that a bit? That that gets broken up when this sort of thing happens. 
Yes, I've, I said I've only been here three years, but I've found it a, a, a really great community. A lot of people know each other. You go to the local bus stop because the, the public transport is very close. You meet people from around here. They're very friendly. I've only actually got to know them the past couple of years as I've moved around and, and explored the area. And I said they're very friendly and open and welcome. There's no social issues here. It's just a great area. Mm. Margaret, how long have you been there? I've been here 23 years. Um, so when I moved here, there was just a great big wasteland over the road going to the tracks, and then they built the Beacon Cove estate. So there's been a lot of change since I've lived here. Um but, yes, as Jeannie says, it has a great community. Um, it, it's working the way social housing is meant to work. And the only explanation they gave for demolishing the whole estate was that it was more efficient. Um, and in terms of destroying a community, um, that didn't seem to be a concern at all. Mm. I would have thought, though, that if the if the buildings are there, they're not in they're not in a state of disrepair. That uh, you can hardly call it efficient to tear them down and build on the same spot. No, mm. no, not not from my point of view. Um, it, it the whole thing is just really hard to understand, and we still have no idea what it is they're planning to build here, um, but it certainly won't be like this. This estate has been designed with a lot of care. It was a project between the Port Melbourne Council, as was at the time, um, and, you know, it, it's a, a thoughtfully designed social housing community, and to just wipe it away... Um, makes no sense. Uh, do you feel there's a chance of stopping it happening? I mean, is there a, you know, strong, obviously you're involved, but is there a, a strong campaign involved? There's a group called Save Public Housing Collective in that area. Um, is there a chance of, of preventing this happening? I hope so. I maybe believe so. I I can't, like, it seems to be a decision that was come to very quickly. Um, there, there's been no discussion of redevelopment in Port Melbourne before we were told, and though it's on the Homes Victoria website now, there was nothing there before that. Um, so it's kind of like they woke up on the morning of December the 13th and said, I know what we can do. Um, so, look, I, I hope that it's, it's very difficult because the decision makers will not speak to us. You send in letters and emails and you just get referred back to the relocation team. Um, and as I keep telling them that... The problem is in the name. I don't want to relocate, so that's not who I want to speak to. 
No, <laughs> fair enough, and keep keep fighting it. That's right. There's another estate in Port Melbourne, the um, not Stokes not Stokes estate, which is in a state of pretty much disrepair. I noticed one of the roofs blew off in the November storms. Now, the, the the money surely could be spent just maintaining and renovating and restoring that particular estate, but keeping it in public housing, surely. Yes. Well, you know, I I believe from what I've, I've been playing this very big catch-up since December the 13th, when I was sitting there innocently thinking, oh, good, they're building more public housing, um, until I discovered that would involve me giving up my house. Um, but it seems that what the government is actually doing is getting out of public housing um, in all the estates that they've built, um, the social housing component, which is always the smaller component, um, is being managed by community housing, which is a different system. It's more expensive for the tenants and it relies on getting the federal rent assistance. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't really understand it because Victoria spends less on public housing per person than any other state, so I don't think there's an urgent need for the government to be um, handing public housing over to a different system. Yeah, it is just really bizarre, isn't it, because the community housing... Um, is still going to, like, it's relying on this new build, which is at the government's expense. So the government is basically paying to give away this asset and have everyone except for the Community Housing Limited be worse off. Yes, yes. And, I, you know, I don't really understand, like, I think community housing is a great thing, but what we have is what started a small local organisation becoming these mega landlords who are managing properties all over Melbourne. So it's hardly community housing anymore. No, and while, well, you're already in there, but of course it's also been levelled at, at social housing and community housing bodies that uh, because they have to make money themselves, they tend to take, if there's a choice of two people, they take the one they think more likely to be able to keep paying the rent, for instance. So the the, the most the, you know, the most disadvantaged people are, are missing out uh, because that's where public housing took them in, but social housing often rejects them. I believe that that is the case, yes. Um, and, yeah, like, it just seems this amazing idea that operating as a business is always the best way. Um, so, you know, these community housing groups merge with each other. I, I know people who live in Kensington where they were being managed by one person and then it merged with another and became a different organisation. Um and it just doesn't have the same security that public housing has. No, and in fact, in the Kensington one, um, Dr. Um, 
Kate Shaw from Melbourne Uni, she did a she was commissioned by the government, in fact, but then they rejected it um, to do a study, and she she real she uncovered the fact that the private company there was virtually given the land. Um, you know, they just made a fortune out of public property, out of public housing. Yes, they they made. I think I read a thirty seven percent profit, which is apparently way above the normal, you know, twenty percent. That yeah, yeah. You would expect. Yeah, all right. We're out of time, unfortunately. But um, look, good luck to both of you in keeping it going. Margaret Kelly, we've been talking to, and Jenny Erseg. They're both members of uh, both residents of that estate in Port Melbourne, the the um, Barrack Beacon estate, which is unfortunately threatened with being torn down. But we'll, we'll keep in touch on this issue. And uh, thanks to you both this morning for uh, giving us your time. Thank you for taking an interest. <laughs> okay, Jeannie, Margaret, thanks very much. Um, and that was uh, that was um, Jeannie Ursig and uh, Margaret Kelly, both residents of that estate. And it's, as usual, yeah, it, following on from you, what you said of you know, your earlier interview, in fact, there's a yeah. direct link there, but um, it's bloody awful. Yeah, it really is. And once again, listeners should go to 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits and find that petition uh, when we upload the podcast um, so that you can put your voice towards um, stopping this nonsensical <laughs> development. Yep. Um, we got a note from a caller contracting at high level big dollars. Dollars. What publicity is? What publicity is this getting? Concerned people are not hearing about this. Um, well, we've just been talking about it, but they're, they're making private sectors going to make big money out of it. But uh, if that's what the caller meant, um, look, we're out of time. But next week, next week it's not, to transport. Transport is with it John not? McPherson. Yeah, yeah. and we should also hopefully be getting an interview with the Disability Resources Centre again um, and we can talk a little bit more about the Transport for All campaign and even if the mainstream media isn't covering enough, we can do our bit. We can do it on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.